0: Welcome to the third episode of our podcast series, Urban Development and Blue Biodiversity. This episode will be conducted in English. I'm Veronica Siva, a Sea and Landscape Architect at Habitats, and I'm excited to guide you through this captivating episode. Today, we'll explore the pivotal question, how can we incorporate nature into our urban construction practice? Our focus will be on coastal cities and the response to the escalating threat of rising sea levels. Joining me in the studio is Rasmus Vincent, the CEO of Habitats, and our special guest, Su Jung-Ru. Together, we'll delve into her groundbreaking PhD project, prepared to revolutionize the way we envision coastal city construction. Su Jung will unveil the untapped potential of seaweed and marine ecosystems as catalyst for urban transformation. So get ready to delve into the future of coastal city planning as we set sail on this motivating episode. Welcome to an inspiring conversation about urban seascaping.
1: Hey Sue, and a very warm welcome. i are so happy to have you here. And first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on your um, PhD that you just defended. Thank you. Congratulations to you, but I think congratulations to the rest of us, because I really think it's a great contribution to this field, and it shares so many interesting insights and ideas that I would like to talk more with you about now. First question to you is, your PhD is about urban seascaping. What is seascaping, and why is it a thing now?
2: Uh, I guess a lot of the... Sort of the existing research I encountered were done by marine biologists and they were done outside of the urban context. Um, And so I was thinking, well, what about in the cities that we live? What about all the everyday experiences of living in a coastal city? How come we have so many spaces for, well, green spaces and parks, but not so much when it comes to um, blue spaces? And so that's where this idea of urban seascaping came along, and that we need to treasure the, the marine nature that we live uh, next to and with. Um, and the fact that a lot of research, we need to explore new things and things that haven't been explored. And I realized that a lot of seascapes have been disregarded um, at the expense of urban development. So that's something that I thought, oh, maybe I might tap into this. Maybe there's something there that I could uh, discover new ideas and new thoughts.
1: Yes. Why is urban seascaping a thing now?
2: I think uh, the discourse around sea level rise and storm surge have really uh, pushed for the introduction of what's called nature-based solutions. So thinking about how coastal nature like eelgrass, seaweed, and how they contribute towards uh, coastal protection and adaptation. So I think these sort of impending sort of climate crisis have actually opened up a discourse on um, seascapes and marine nature. So I think that's why it's become a really hot topic right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's becoming a very hot topic as well. Um, but there also seems to be some kind of inherent like paradox in how, how do we design for nature because people like to think about it as contradicting and say either we have nature or we have designed environments for humans. But can we have both?
2: Yeah, I think there's this misconception that uh, nature exists in a vacuum without human intervention and vice versa. Um, And I think we live in an age where it's inevitable that human intervention is part of um, forming uh, landscapes and seascapes and so on. And so I think there is a a great potential and a responsibility for people who make decisions about the way um, these uh, areas are developed to contribute and say, okay, how do we want these cities to look like? How do we want these cities to function? And who do we want um, to design for and I think um, now a lot of uh, discourse has been around okay from the past 100 200 years we've been focusing on human centered and land-based way of developing our cities and and coast coastal nature and so on and how about if we then think about okay what about if we thought from the perspective of marine life forms and and how do we design for them as well as for humans? So it's, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could definitely be, be both. And I think there's definitely room to do that. It's just that we haven't thought about that that was a, a possibility in the past.
1: Mm, yeah. And uh, who, who, who are the people? Who are the, um, um, what, what kind of professions? do you see involved in this process? I mean, is it just biologists? Is it just urban planners? Or who are involved in the process of formulating not just the dreams about how do we want our cities to look like, but also how to practically manage to design something like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, some some of these projects or some of these issues that we're dealing with are so, so complex and so transdisciplinary. I think it would be naive to say that Only a certain profession has the monopoly on how to do or uh, move towards um, the future in um, addressing these uh, uh, climate change issues or integrating marine nature. And I think everybody has strengths. Uh, For example, coastal engineers, they really understand how to uh, work with water and the hydrology. The marine biologists, of course, understand how marine life forms work. But designers also understand like how to create space that can really uh, bridge the gap that we currently have between humans and non-humans and the land and the sea. And then we have also educators uh, in marine um, education centers who are also like disseminating research and talking to young students and educating the public about marine life forms. So I think it's a really a transdisciplinary project and you can't just uh, isolate um, one one discipline. And of course, the policy makers and people in the municipality have also a huge role as well. So I think it's a big team effort.
1: It sounds like. It sounds like. And uh, it's probably not going to be easy, but still very important. Do you have any examples of where people have taken up uh, upon them the, the challenge of formulating some of the visions for how do we actually want this seascape, this city, to look like that integrate a more living environment?
2: I mean, I've worked uh, closely with uh, Weiler Municipality um, in this design competition called Canton, and they really tried to actually invite artists and architects into the discussion, which is traditionally being dominated by marine biologists or um, engineers. And they also wanted to invite anthropologists and the, the community, the citizens, so I think Vila Municipality, they are probably one of the prime examples of trying to work with it, with different actors and different um, players and trying to come up with a uh, yeah equitable solution for the future.
1: In your work, you've focused a lot on seaweed. But can you please enlighten us a little bit? What is seaweed for a thing and why is it so interesting?
2: Um, so for me, I have a South Korean background. So, you know, Most of my life, seaweed was always around, uh, but mainly in the form of uh, food. Uh, But whereas when I moved to Europe, um, seaweed was something that was completely disregarded, uh, considered a nuisance, um, and it was just never really mentioned when we were talking about blue biodiversity and more marine nature-based solutions. So I thought, hmm, maybe I might like go into this a bit further. Why is seaweed so disregarded here? And then, yeah, I started to realize that even the language around is a bit questionable. Why would you call it a weed, for example? In Korea, we definitely don't call it a weed. And we have like different common names for seaweed. And a lot of citizens or local people can differentiate between different types of seaweed. Whereas in Denmark, they commonly mistaken like eelgrass for seaweed. And there's not that many um, seaweed literacy in Denmark as well. And so, I think there's been a lot of like physical and psychological barriers when it comes to um, seaweed. Uh, it's considered um, something that's gross that, and slimy and smelly that you want to avoid when you're on the beach. People confuse it with um, the microalgae, with the macroalgae. They blame seaweed for eutrophication, which is really a hu- result of human activities. And so, I think that really contributes to this kind of disenchantment with seaweed. We don't have positive narratives or um, interesting kind of uh, perspective on seaweed. It's really um, something that is uh, really boring and really disregarded. So I think there's something uh, that really needs to be dug deep into as to why this is something that people find so disregarding and invisible.
1: Yeah, you, you're definitely onto some point. You also brought up the concept of enchantment, which is a little surprising concept to bring in, both in terms when you talk about design, but also when you talk about science and biology. Can you elaborate a little more? What do you mean with enchantment?
2: I think uh, it's it was used by this political um, theorist and a philosopher called Jane Bennett in the States. And she talked about how it's really hard to love something that is so disenchanting. And I think she's kind of referring to a lot of, for example, this climate change uh, dialogue that's quite doom and gloom. And maybe we need more um, inspiring and more enchanting stories that people can actually engage with and want to contribute towards. And I think that is something that's really important when we are also dealing with um, blue biodiversity because it's something that people don't know much about. So I think it's important that we introduce um, yeah, more enchanting and more engaging narratives about the sea and its life forms
1: and who are taking care of enchantment
2: um, yeah there's like a lot of people um, from marine biologists um, to planners to designers to artists but One um, writer or one urban planner that I was really, really influenced by um, and one of the reasons why I actually uh, started uh, my PhD is uh, a professor called Timothy Beatley and he wrote this book called Blue Urbanism in 2014. So when he was talking about it uh, in 2014, it was something really, really new as well. And he really talked about that a lot of our mapping methods and these visualizations, um, we render the sea as this dark, abstract, lifeless plane. And he really was asking the creative industries to sort of um, contribute and say, hey, how can we change this? How can we make and represent this marine world in a much more enchanting, much more engaging and much more even visually accurate way, not something that's dark and lifeless, but something that is active, powerful and beautiful as well.
1: One of the things that I find very fascinating in in your work is that you're not just insisting that we should redesign our uh, urban areas and our seascapes, but also you're putting the pressure on our culture and, and ask us to rethink a lot of things in our culture. How do we think it's going to unfold from here? The process of transforming the way that we see, that we behave in the world.
2: I think there are you know, many ways to influence the way people think about the water. And currently, the way we think about the water is a quite an instrumental um, one, where we see it as a resource that we can use for our own benefits um, and to change that. You know, there's, uh, like I said, there's marine educators working on it, there's um, people who are working in municipalities uh, communicating with the citizens. But from my discipline of landscape architecture and design and urban planning, I think we are coming from more of a spatial approach. So what would happen if let's say uh, a citizen that lives in a coastal city has a much better access to these marine coastal life forms, not in a way that is currently set up, which is that we're elevated in this concrete um, platform and the sea is over there, very like far away and distant and invisible. But what if we designed our spaces so that we can have a much tactile, more sensuous, uh, much closer, more visible, and much more accessible ways of uh, relating to the water? How would that impact the way we think about water and then make decisions about these uh, life forms that we have an obligation to and our responsibility towards? So we don't really know the full impact of this because there aren't that many examples where coastal cities have included marine nature in a way that is more accessible and that is more tactile and much more meaningful. So it's something that's really up and coming. And only by experimenting with what is possible, I think then we will really understand what the benefits will be in the future. So we don't have a lot of time. So I think it's time to experiment and see what works, what doesn't work. And every coastal city in, a, in their local context will have a different uh, relationship with different life forms and different stories. So um, yeah, I think this is something that uh, is really urgent and needs to be done. And, and like a good example of um, a narrative or a cultural shift that can really help us think differently about the water is um, New Zealand. That's where I come from. And we have this indigenous people that live around this particular river called the Whanganui. And they believe that when you die, you become part of the river. So they see the river as a living uh, human being. So the New Zealand government um, gave a human legal right to the river to acknowledge their belief. Uh, um, And so this river now has a human status. So, If, let's say, somebody was to pollute the water by putting untreated sewage, then a lawyer can represent the river as a client and then sue the company who is destroying the river. Now, New Zealand is not a litigious country, so it's not like we're suing each other all the time, but I think the potential for this particular example is that it made us think about the water as something beyond an instrument or beyond a resource. To something that is alive, something that we're connected to, and then something that we should look after and not just trash and exploit, which is what we've been doing for the last century. So I think there's a huge power in narratives and huge power in the way we see the water, which has an impact on our decisions.
1: It's, it's definitely a very interesting and, and powerful example. Uh, but I don't think you, you have sometimes used the term agency Mm -hmm. that the ocean has agency and we can even work with that or collaborate with Mm -hmm. that agency can you explore that a little more
2: yeah so you know because of sea level rise and storm surge the water is coming into our city and it has its power to infiltrate into the landscape and in the past we've had space that allows the water to come into the land and then flush out but now we've designed cities with concrete walls and pumps to prevent that from doing that, and that has an impact on the local, you know, well, um, nature and and the way we engage with the dynamics of the sea. So, if we created uh, spaces and allowed the agency or the power of the water to come in and out like it has always done, then perhaps we can also influence the way we see the sea is not as a static thing but as something that's much more dynamic and powerful and that um, it's not something that we always have to fear if we just provide space for water to come in and out.
1: Now I'd like to ask you a question that is something that we can falsify. That means come back, meet again in some years and say... Is it actually developed the way that you expect? So I'd like to ask you, to what extent do you think that there will be seascape uh, architects? And what time, but to what extent do you think there will be seascape projects in urban areas in most of the cities uh, in Europe or in the world, or in just a minority of them, some few writers uh, only, and the field has still not moved? So looking at it like five years from now, how will the picture be?
2: I mean, five years is probably not uh, a long time in the big scheme of things, but the IPCC deadline is 2030. So we have seven years left to halve global emissions. So I think this whole um, theme around blue biodiversity, blue carbon, it's really, really ramping up, especially in Europe and around different places around the world. So I do think that the role of seascape architects will be much more prominent in the future than it is now, whether it would be 5, 10, 15 years from now on. But I guess the problem at the moment is that a lot of the architects and landscape architects are not equipped to deal with the marine realm, because we've always been practicing on, um, on the ways of the land and landscape uh, like plants and so on. So I think this collaboration between marine biologists and architects, it's quite a new sort of collaboration. I think that would be really needed in order for this seascape architects to sort of take flight in the future. And I think it's also misleading to say that this is also a new thing because indigenous communities around the world in South America and in the Pacific have been practicing seascape architecture for centuries. Mm. So, yeah, it's something that perhaps, yeah, in the more contemporary cities that really need to understand and catch up, should I say, with um, how to work with water, how to deal with coastal nature in a more conducive um, way.
1: Yes, definitely. But so far, as as I know, we just have one seascape architect in Denmark, by name at least. How many do you think there will be in five years? Still just one? 10 or 100?
2: Well, at our school in Aarhus uh, Architecture School, um, my supervisor, Katrina Wieberg and Tom Nilsson, they've created a whole uh, design studio based on these things. So I'm hoping that in five years, they will all graduate as uh, seasca- seascape architects and um, be hopefully be able to practice uh, some of their learnings and have capacity in wherever they decide to work in, whether it's a municipality or a practice, to be able to, yeah, really use their understanding and knowledge and creativity in forming and developing uh, solutions like that integrates marine life for the future in, in Denmark and abroad.
1: So you'll go more for the 100 uh, seascapes architect yeah. by name in, in five years.
2: Yeah, hopefully, yeah. I think uh, it's they will be much needed. So I think uh, there will definitely be demand for them.
1: Yeah, I also think there's definitely a need for more people to design with, with the marine environment. Uh, But when we started in Habitats to work with the marine environment, we got approached by so many marine biologists who were unemployed or at least not employed with what they're educated for, because there's so few jobs for people like them. But hopefully that is going to change as well.
2: Yeah, I would agree that that's going to change.
1: We are going to change. it.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Now we have to go to the last part that we call the Waves of the Week. That is some kind of a splash that has some ripple effects. And I would like to ask you something that has inspired you that you can pass on to other people.
2: Um, So recently, uh, the research network that I've been involved with, uh, it's part of the Real Dania Cities and Rising Seawater Project. Um, It's in collaboration with other researchers from Copenhagen University and DTU. And we were able to contribute towards the Venice Biennale, the Danish Pavilion, and it was solely focusing on um, the potential of coastal nature in transforming urban developments in the future. And the particular case they worked on was Copenhagen. But it was this idea of allowing the water to come in and transforming Copenhagen into this much more of a, a wet, dry um, space that's uh, yeah, much more... Um, uh, able to uh, cater for more water um, and allow like these marine life forms to also shape and transform Copenhagen as well.
1: And I would like to ask you for if you have one more recommendation for us for something that had made an impression on you that you would like to share with us?
2: Um, it's a, It was actually um, a temporary art installation that I thought was really, really fascinating. It was by this, um, I think she was a Turkish artist, Isa, Isa Eichmann, and she um, did this bridge installation in Münster, in Germany, where she um, submerged this land bridge about 30 centimeters under the, the river, which is a very calm river in, in Münster. And then basically invited the citizens of Münster to walk across the river through this bridge, which allowed them to get their feet wet So they had dogs, children, all people walking across this bridge. And it looks like they kind of look like Jesus walking on water. But it was the first time where the citizen of Munster had a much more direct contact with the water that they were living next to. It was a much more tactile, much more sensual kind of experience that they never were able to have. So I that Kind of art installation really inspired me to rethink the way we design our coastal cities and our urban environments and and our lack of engagement with water. And so if a project like that is possible, then why can't we have more of this sort of stuff in different coastal cities as part of an everyday experience of living next to the water? So unfortunately, it was a temporary uh, installation, but I think it really touched upon something that is really missing in many coastal cities.
1: Thank you that's a very really great example i'm afraid there might be more flooded bridges and other things yeah. in the future as well <laughs> yeah
2: so. yeah
1: there's also a book published yeah. Ready, the, ready yep. that. yeah
2: yeah there's a book called uh critical coast uh, is the whole theme is called uh, coastal imaginaries and we interview different scholars different artists different practitioners from all around the world to contribute towards this very important discussion on yeah, blue biodiversity and climate adaptation and urban transformation. So that's a book that I also uh, contributed. So please check it out and yeah, be informed in this very important discussion.
1: So thank you so much for your great work and for being here and sharing it with us. It's really enlightening and inspiring, even though it also sometimes is provocative. But that's a good thing because we need to move forward.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again for inviting me. Next time, we'll explore Marcus Westerer's perspective on addressing the challenge of enhancing and preserving biodiversity in marine and coastal environments when we engage in urban development. Marcus Westerer is a member of the Copenhagen City Council and a trained architect, passionate about ensuring sustainable development with a focus on green areas. So, join us in our upcoming episode about the political waves in the sea, and thank you for listening.